as I said at the uh, beginning of the service last last week or the week before um, we were in Stirling and uh, whenever we visit Stirling we always find ourselves making our way up the hill to the uh, the Church of the Holy Rood, and um, because next to it is a cemetery, and in that cemetery, uh, I proposed to Margaret, and that was a very, <laughs> that was a very meaningful experience. When uh, standing beside the memorial to the two Margarets, or the Margaret who was killed in the Solway Firth for her faith, uh, and Agnes with her, um, just down from it or opposite it, there's a wee hillock, and it was there we were sitting on the bank when I plucked up the courage to ask. Margaret if she'd marry me so it's um, uh, at that time uh, deeply in love it was all terribly romantic uh, lying there surrounded by headstones Uh, but there you are now uh, what's happened here Uh, it should be <laughs> ah. You, I'm sure you've all met people who were, uh, as I was then, uh, and still am, head over heels in love. And uh, and what happens is when you meet them, as I've got here. Um, you meet them and you get very impressed with them because if they are really in love, they get very enthusiastic if they've just fallen in love for the first time and fresh. So think of that. Try to experience that and and picture that in your head this morning. What happens is they go on and on and on about the person they have met and the way they're feeling and what their hopes and expectations are for the future. Now, take your minds back, those of you who are here, married, can you remember those days? No. Well, I'll have a word with Graham. I'm sure some of us can remember those days, and that's what happens when you get romantic. There we go. You go on, and you, you, they, they're so contagious and enthusiastic, you get to the place where it's, you're desperate to meet the person that they're speaking about. As I read Psalm 34 over this past week, that's the thought that came into my mind. The picture of someone falling in love with someone and just bursting with enthusiasm as they would talk about the person in mind. And this psalm has been written, I suggest, by someone who really was deeply and profoundly in love with God. Look at what he says. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Come, let us tell of the Lord's goodness. Let us exalt his name together. Now look at those expressions and what you have here is someone who is so much in love with God that all he wants to do is talk about him and commend him and brag about him to other people. And as I read it, I found myself wondering, is our love for God seen as clearly as David's was? 
I mean, are we so fired up with love for God, as David obviously was, because that is the way God wants it to be. He wants us to love him, as Jesus said, with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And you read this psalm and the rest of it, and you get introduced to how we should really be feeling and thinking if we are enjoying a relationship with God. Notice firstly in these words, David was enthusiastic about God. I will extol the Lord at all times. Now that word extol means to praise with real enthusiasm. Now I, I constantly get amazed at the enthusiasm that people generate when they're watching a football game. I'm amazed at that. I mean, I, we have a, a son who uh, is a pastor in, in, in Aberdeen, and when Liverpool is playing, and that makes it even more imaginative and amazing, and of a man sitting at the front here who even supports Celtic and gets excited and enthusiastic, which is even more incredible than Liverpool. Uh, but here he is, and, and, and you watch these people, and they're cheering, and they're shouting, they're jumping, they're out of their seats, they're waving flags, they're waving their arms. That is enthusiasm. That's enthusiasm. And that's how David was. He felt enthusiastic about the God that Sheena was reminding us of this morning. And he wanted people to extol, to praise God with real enthusiasm. And I want to say again as Christians, we should be enthusiastic about our relationship with God. Why? Well, the word enthusiasm comes from enthusiasmos, which is rooted in religion. It's a Greek word. And when you analyze it, what it means is en means in. The word in the middle comes from theos, God, and it literally means in God. And it's talked about historically as someone who is possessed by a God. And notice the small g there. So people were described as enthusiastic when they were seen as being possessed by a God. And that's the root of the word enthusiasm. God had invaded people's lives and it showed in the way they were behaving. Now, my dear friends this morning, if any people are possessed by a God, it's us. Because when you read the scriptures of the New Testament, you discover that we are all, us Christians, possessed by God. He comes in and he takes possession of our lives. That's the situation. Look at these passages of scripture with me and I'll read them to you rather in John chapter 14 verses 15 to 18. If you love me, you will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and listen to this, and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an impersonal power. And when we invite Jesus Christ into our lives, the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
comes and takes up residence in our lives. He possesses our lives. And he's meant to be in control of our lives from that moment on. In verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And listen to these amazing words. We will come to him and make our home with him. Now imagine that. We will come to him and make our home with him. So God wants us to know that he is living within us and he's in charge of our lives and he is meant to be ruling over our lives as our welcome guest. In the book of Romans in chapter 8 and verses 9 to 11 we read, You however are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the spirit if the spirit Spirit of God lives in you. Now there again, that's an incredible message. You are controlled by the Spirit. But for that to happen, we have to let him loosen our lives. We have to let him possess every part of our being, our heads, our hearts, our hands, our feet. He has to be in control. And if the Holy Spirit is living in our lives, that's the relationship we're meant to enjoy with him. And that's what Paul expresses in Romans 8 and verses 9 to 11. He goes on to talk about that experience, and you can read about that at home. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Now notice this mystery has, is full of richness and riches. And what is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now there we are. Those three passages of scripture alone tell us that almighty God in the person of the Holy Spirit lives in our lives. A person lives within us. The person, the third person of the Trinity. And he wants to be occupying the place of prominence in our lives where he guides us, he directs us, he teaches us, he instructs us, he leads us. That's what he, the role he wants to fulfill. And that's what leads to being possessed by God. That's what it means to be possessed by him. We have opened our lives to him voluntarily. And we have said, I thank you for your amazing love that led you to die for me, a sinner. And here's my worthless life. And I want you to fill me to overflowing, to possess every part of my being, to rule over my life. So that I can let people see that God lives by my enthusiastic approach of praising you. My dear friends, if we really appreciate the message of these verses of scripture. That Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That the living God is dwelling inside us. We would not be sinning like we do. Because we wouldn't want to grieve him. But we would be living in an attitude of praise and adoration. Because he is worthy. Is that how people see us as Christians? Do they see us as enthusiastic about our faith? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. Teaching us, guiding us, leading us, and blessing us.
David was enthusiastic uh, uh, with God. But secondly, note, or not secondly, just note, I will extol the Lord. Who was he extolling? Who was he praising? He was not seeking to draw attention to himself. Everything he said, everything he was doing was to point to God. And we know that when you read that expression, the Lord in the scriptures, it refers to the all-powerful and loving God. So it was David's mind that everything he said and did would point people and direct people to think of God. Now I'm going to bore some of you because I've told this story in ABC before about the old lady in the days when there were washerwomen who would make a living by washing clothes for people. And this old lady lived in a city where there was a city mission. And every Monday morning at a certain time, she would pull her hands out of the wash tub where she'd been washing the clothes, and she would wipe off the suds, she would put on her black shawl, and she would go to the corner of the street and she would stand there. And at about 10 o'clock every Monday morning, this gentleman would walk past and as he was walking past, he would stop and he would talk with her. And when he left her, she was always heard going back to her washing, her mundane job of washing clothes saying, I've met my Jesus man today. I've met my Jesus man today. And that was all important to her, that she had met this city missioner who when you stood with him, when you listened with him, you felt Jesus was there. You know, Paul said we were to copy him. And I think that man's life was worth copying. And I, I, I find it really difficult to think how many people in this life, how many people that will I have known in my 73 years who have left me saying, I've met my Jesus man. Extol the Lord. And notice what he says, at all times, and his praise will always be in my lips. David was a person of praise. There was no opportunities where he would choose and say, oh, this is, he wouldn't analyze them and say, oh, this is a time when I should burst into praise. Or this is a time when I should burst into tears. And this is a time when I should feel rejected. No, in every situation and in every circumstance that entered his life, he was praising God. He was extolling God. When things were going right or when things were going wrong, and they often did with David. In Psalm 146, he starts off by saying, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. From that moment of first realization that God wanted him and the Holy Spirit fell upon him, he lived his life to praise God. And he said, I'm going to do that all my life. I will sing praise to God as long as I live. So there was his resolution. 
He was going to live. And his overriding ambition and desire in life was to praise God, whatever happened and whatever the circumstances of his life. He didn't want to praise God in isolation either. He wanted other people to join him. Verse 3, glorify the Lord with me. He was saying to the people of God, here I am, here I am, and I love the life I'm leading because God has possessed my life and he's leading me to praise him every moment of every day and every circumstance, good or bad, I find something for which to give God thanks. Come and join me. Come and join me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we made a commitment as a church and as a church family, to live our lives every day, to glorify God, to extol God, to praise God. And we were doing it together, even though we were separated in different offices, in different places of employment, in different homes. Simultaneously, we were living our lives to extol, to praise, and to bless God. And the psalmist wanted every believer to share his enthusiasm for God. I was listening just to part of a, a service in a black church. I, I had one glorious example of that when I was doing uh, a series of studies in, in, uh, in San Francisco in the seminary there. I was on sabbatical studying. And we were taken to this dynamic black church. Absolutely dynamic. There would have been about 2,000 people there. And the preacher, Alfred Smith, was an amazing man. But he would come and the the whole service would be led. And then he would get up to the front and he would stand there and he would start to preach. And as he started to preach, he would get a little bit more enthusiastic. The words would start to fall a little bit more quickly of his lips. And you know, by the time he was finished, he was jumping and he was preaching and he was jumping. And do you know what encouraged him? Because the whole church were there with him. And, and sometimes you could hardly hear him above the, Amen, preach it man, and hallelujah, and all these black people worshipping God in a way that we know nothing about. And if we went there, as I did, I felt sort of out of place because there was I standing. Don't ask me to jump. Don't ask me to give a hallelujah. No amens from me. And I was missing out because at the end of the service I was confronted by person after person after person who was bubbling with enthusiasm for God and singing his praise and speaking his praise. The psalmist wanted everybody to share his enthusiasm with God. And as I look back and I say, Lord, I wish I had the courage to be what those people were being in the presence of Almighty God. He wanted people to be enthusiastic. Why? Well, he had experienced God's help. Unfortunately, he lived the other side of the cross So he hadn't experienced the wonderful regenerative and redemptive forgiveness of Jesus through his death on the cross. But when you read this psalm, he knew God and he had experienced God. 
We'll go back to the psalm and in verses 4 to 7 we read, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Now let's look at this. This incident, if you look up at the top, it speaks about David pretending to be insane. Now this psalm was written after this experience in his life. And when you read the passage in 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, you do find yourself raising big question marks over it. He was in a life-threatening position. This was the king of Gath. And he was a cruel king. And he could be very barbaric in his treatment of prisoners. And there was David standing in front of this king. And the king was looking at him, eyeing him up, and deciding to make up his mind what he was going to do with this man. And David suddenly had this brainwave. Oh, the way I can get out of that is pretend to be a nutcase. And if I'm a nutcase, they're not going to do anything. He'll think, oh dear me, this man's a, uh, you know, he's a failure, he's a flop, he's mad, and let him go. And look what it says. David was very much afraid of Achish. So he feigned insanity in his presence, making marks on the doors, scratching the doors, and letting saliva run down his his beard. Imagine the picture that would have presented. The Akish would have certainly come to the conclusion he was insane. So it wasn't a particularly high spot in David's life. Instead of trusting God in this case, he was feigning insanity to find a way of escape. But you know, the interesting thing is, even during that period when it was going on, he was doing something else. And instead of hiding in shame, and determined to, to learn from the, the event. And he praises God for his patience and his grace and deliverance. Look at what he did in the presence of Achish. Even as he was feigning insanity. I sought the Lord. Some of the translations have it. I prayed to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This man could have taken his life. He could have been standing there trembling. But his fears had gone. And there he was. What was he doing? He was sending an SOS to God. Even as he was feigning insanity. Please help me. Get me out of this. I'll do this and I'll pretend to be that. But ultimately get me out. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now my friends, that's something we need to learn. Nehemiah did the same. He was standing before the king who could have put him to death ruthlessly. And what did he do? The king said, you're sad, Nehemiah. And you know you shouldn't be sad when you're in my presence. I could get your head chopped off for being sad. What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? And here's what we read. So I prayed to the God of heaven and said. He didn't say to the king, uh, hold on. And get down on his knees and pray. He just looked at the king and spoke. But as he spoke, he was sending an SOS that way as his words come out that way. And that's what David was doing. And the interesting thing is, the lesson is, God heard David and Nehemiah's prayer, and God answered those prayers. And God removed his fears. I sought the Lord, he answered me, he removed my fears. That word fear can be translated as terror, and that's how David felt. He felt 
terrorized by what was standing before him. But as a result of his prayer, his fears were removed. You know, my friends, that verse of Scripture is one that I think every pastor will use when he's visiting people in real need. I sought the Lord. I've done this so many times when people are facing surgery. And I've said, you know, you're, you, if, you're, if you're a human being at all, you're bound to be lying there wondering, what's going to happen? Am I going to come through this surgery? Is the doctor going to be skilled to carry it through correctly? And the fears are there legitimately. But look at what David said. I sought the Lord. I prayed to the Lord. He answered and he freed me from all my fears. And to hear people talking about God's intervention and how their fears were lifted. And they were able to go into anything with God. And God answering prayer made people radiant. Those who look to him independence are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Now that word radiant means describing people whose faces literally light up with joy. Instead of being long faced, it's beaming. That's what it means. You find it in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5. God was leading Isaiah to think of the people who had been exiled coming back home again to their own land after being exiled for years. And he said, lift up your eyes, look about you, be radiant. Hearts will throb and swell with joy. All these people coming home after exile. What what a sheer joyful experience that was. And it made them radiant. People as they were going back into a situation of poverty would have gone back singing praises to God and lifting him high. Believers face to light up as God answers prayer. Isn't that amazing? That's what God wants The third thing is God delivered him from his troubles. You find this in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 34. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. He delivered him. David was able to walk away from that situation of terror unscathed. Now, this presents some people with difficulties because not everybody walks away unscathed. In that situation before King Achish, David did. But that doesn't always happen when people encounter difficulties. You and I know that. I still remember the night I, I talked to, to, to the church up in uh, Castle Park about the 15 young men who were led out along the beach by IS soldiers. One soldier of ISIS to one Christian dressed in the color of outfits that people were made to wear in the prison uh, camp in Haiti, organized by the USA. And, and these young men walked out, walked out. Then they knelt down. And then they were made to lie flat. And there wasn't one word of complaint. No crying, no begging for mercy. And then suddenly the hand of one person from ISIS went round one and so on down the the line and 15 heads fell. 
And back at home, including the mothers, there was a service of thanksgiving because their sons had not denied their faith. We don't always walk away unscathed. Troubles come. Troubles happen. Troubles befall us. That's the reality of life. David experienced that and escaped it. But during it, he praised God. Now, would David have praised him if it had gone the other way? I suggest to you when you read the Psalms, he would have. He believed whatever happened to him was in God's will. Whatever happened. We don't understand it, but whatever happened was in God's will. Therefore, God would be with him and would deliver him. Literally or spiritually. Literally, I mean physically. Would have delivered him. Worked a miracle of grace and brought him out safely. Or spiritually, he would have been there. With him, holding his hand, just as Stephen, when he looked up to heaven and as he was about to be stoned, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. But the stone started to fall. But he died with that vision and that picture that God was there, not only in heaven, but with him. And he faced that challenge. In Hebrews Chapter 11. Why did they do that? Because they had faith. Stephen had faith. David had faith. The saints of old had faith. And here's what it says about faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Even when we don't see things the way that, that, they're, that they're, go, they're, they're going wrong for us. And we see things and we can't see God. Where is he? We can't see him. Faith says, I know he's here. And even though we had longed for something different, we still can say, I know he's here. That's what faith is. And in verse 6 it says, without faith... It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's where we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And having shared his own problems and experiences, he then turns to consider others. And I'll just nip through this quickly. He encourages people to prove God personally. You read that in the rest of the psalm. He's, he's pictured this scene and presented it where he was before the king. He could have lost his life. He could have been punished. And he prayed and God answered. His fears were taken. And then he turns and he wants people to share with him his experience. And so he goes on. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're doubting. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm very conservative in my food, tastes of food. Very conservative. And when I go to visit overseas and people are kind enough to give hospitality and then they bring you out something that you never ever thought you would face in your life and they put it before you and you know you have been taught in the faith mission. Jesus said, whatever people put in front of you, you eat. 
That was what Jesus said when he was sending the disciples out. And you look at it and you think, what on earth am I going to do with this? And then you get a fork and you take just the tiniest bit and suddenly you discover, wow, this is fine. This is fine. And then the next thing, the sparks are coming off your knife and fork as you get into it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And my dear friends, that is the experience God wants everyone to have. And David wants everyone to have. Taste and see. And if you're here this morning and you're facing difficulties in life, maybe it's because your faith is not as real and vital as God wants it to be. And God says, taste, get stuck in there and you'll find that I'm good and my friends if we do that taste and see we'll never be disappointed he wants people to take refuge in him now this word refuge is one we're very familiar with today sadly in many places today we hear about women's refuges and what happens they're battered either verbally or physically or emotionally. They have to leave home. And they turn to a woman's refuge. And what do they find there? They find safety from the abuser. They find support as they try to recover their lives. And they find stability in their future life. That experience is there for all of us. We all experience trials. And my dear friends, I don't need to say this to you all. You all know that. I look around and I see such amazing saints here. I look at this lovely couple who have influenced my life more than they will ever know by the stability and strength of their faith and character. I see it all over this place. And all of us, including Adrian and Margaret, know that trials do come. Look what it says. He will deliver the righteous from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. As Christians, we can be brokenhearted. We can be crushed in spirit. We will have many troubles. The Lord will rescue. That's what God offers when he sees us in any of these situations, prepared to accept whatever God brings into our lives, he'll be near. And he'll grant us safety from the abuser, the devil behind all the trials. The devil is trying to diminish our faith and destroy our faith. But he'll give us safety. God will give us faith, safety. He will give us support to recover our strength and our confidence and stability to face each new tomorrow. The question is, will we trust our lives into God's keeping now and live to praise him for all his help? This, this is something that God has been just bringing home to me over and over and over again. Life is not easy. There is no check written which says you are exempt from all the troubles and trials of life. We went into Ward 301 on, or 310, I can't remember, on Thursday at our last meeting. And we walked in and there was hardly a space. And that was one of two wards where people were lined up right around. And Neil would know this because he was in that ward. 
And it was just full of beds with people receiving chemotherapy. That's the reality. And we as Christians are living in that world. But are we willing to trust our lives into God's hands and say the way, the way life is leading me is not my choice. I would not have chosen this. But if that is your choice, here I am. Here I am. Habakkuk. Have you ever read Habakkuk? We were in Cornton that Sunday, Cornton Baptist Church. And he said, the preacher Hamish Wishart, who came to visit us in Ellen Baptist Church, Hamish Wishart said, you all know where Habakkuk is. He's, it's known as the clean pages of the Bible. The minor prophets. The clean pages of the Bible. Because so few people read right through to the end of the Old Testament. Look at these words from Habakkuk. I'm nearly finished. I trembled inside. He'd been seeing this picture of God going to destroy the world of that day. The, the people who were coming against Israel and undoubtedly they were going to suffer. When I heard this, I trembled. My lips quivered with fear. My legs trembled and I shook in terror. And then he went on to say, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines... Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren. Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Look at those words. And despite all the havoc that is presented here. He said I am going to... Not just remain in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Because if I look at my circumstances. I will find things for which I can give God thanks. And that's what I'm going to do. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And when our sight fails. And we can't put our finger on anything tangible to say thanks for. Hey. We have the God of our salvation. To, to give thanks for and to praise I finish with this William Cooper a man who was a great Christian wrote many wonderful hymns who suffered severe bouts of depression who tried at least on two or three occasions to take his own life so depressed was he but what a hymn writer here's one of his hymns God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. A smile is filled with love. His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. 
but sweet will be the flower. Not one of us knows what's going to happen in our lives within the next 24 hours. Not one of us. We think we will. That certain things will happen, but we don't know if they will. But whatever happens, if we are possessed by God through the Holy Spirit's occupying and ruling over our lives, whatever life brings to us that God has permitted even though we cannot understand why we've been singled out for it. God says, trust me. Trust me. Take my hand. Let's walk through this together. And if we can do that, and people will see us doing that, guess what? They'll say, I've been with my Jesus man. I've been with my Jesus woman today. Because God will be seen in and through our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are our God. You are our King. You are our Savior. And Father, you gave your Son to save us from sin and to save us from hell and the worst thing that we could ever experience, hell and eternal separation from you. So Father God, if you were able to do that, you can help us, whatever life throws at us. Enable us to trust in you. And having given our lives to you, to renew today our promise to live for you. Come what may. And we ask it in the name of Jesus who prayed, Father, is there no other way for you to resolve this problem of sin? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. May that be our watchword. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn reminds us of a promise that some of us may have made. Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. And we stand to sing. And I do apologize that once again I'm here and we're